Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I make my own rules, one Bonko party at a time. I write history and I read celebrities. I am JMZ. Life is a classroom and I'm here to teach. Welcome back to another episode of Historians on Housewives. You're here with me, Casey. Dr. J. Mill, the millionaires. Max Spear broke us a joke. In this episode, we will dive into the real housewives of New Jersey, or Ronge, as we call it, to examine the persistent entrenchment of racial segregation in the state. For context, 59% of the New Jersey state population is white, followed by 18% Hispanic or Latino. 13% Black or African American, 8% Asian, and the remaining 2% include Native American and Alaska Native, Native Hawaiians, and other Pacific Islanders and multiracial people. Yet despite New Jersey's population diversity, the UCLA Civil Rights Project examined the state of New Jersey from 1989 to 2015, finding that school segregation substantially worsened. New Jersey is currently America's sixth most segregated state for black students and the seventh most segregated state for Latino students. A recent Center on Diversity and Equality in Education study found that almost 25% of New Jersey schools are desperately segregated, with student enrollment at more than 90% white or more than 90% non-white. The lack of school integration stems from practices of residential segregation and gerrymandering, to name just a few, which in turn shape school district boundaries and impact the high correlation between race and socioeconomic status. A coalition of civil rights groups, including the Latino Action Network and the New Jersey chapter of the NAACP, sued the state in 2018 with the goal of rectifying this issue of school segregation. A successful suit would challenge these discriminatory practices, both in the school system and New Jersey more broadly. As of January 10th, 2020, New Jersey courts have ordered the suit to move forward. When it comes to Bravo's portrayal of the state, Ronja's production naturalizes the Italian immigrant narrative as the bedrock informing the state's cultural norms. Production obscures both the racial diversity and racial segregation within the state. As of 2019, New Jersey has the highest diversity index in the nation. A total of 10 towns in Bergen County 
had a diversity index higher than the statewide index. So now we are going to talk with Gwendolyn Fowler about segregation in Bergen County, New Jersey in particular, where the majority of the Ronge women live. Gwendolyn Fowler is a first-year doctoral student in the history department at Rutgers University, New Brunswick, where her research focuses on the welfare rights movement, specifically the West Side Mothers in Detroit, Michigan. Welcome, Gwendolyn Fowler. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. We're excited to be talking with you. Um, To kick us off, would you like to share your uh, historian housewife tagline? Uh, My housewife tagline? Okay. Um, I wrote it down because I had to change it. Uh, So everybody knows a shady grad student knows how to read and how to read. And I see it both. <laughs> yeah, I think you know, you guys would get like how much reading I'm doing at the moment. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so, Gwendolyn, what have you been watching during the pandemic, and what would you recommend? Um. So <laughs> it's kind of been all over the place. Um, I would say I haven't really been on the streaming site. I've been rewatching. But I have been rewatching the X Files on Hulu. Um, I've also been watching the Alien franchise mm-hmm. again. Uh, like anything that kind of makes me feel like nostalgic and, um, you know, thinking of when I wasn't as stressed out and anxious as I am, like at this particular moment. Um, that's what I've been watching. I also found a, um, a really cool channel on my Roku and it shows like all these old Hollywood movies, like black and white. Um, I think it's called TV time. And that's taken up quite a bit of time as far as television goes. Well, that leads into my question for you. So, and you kind of already answered it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So has the pandemic changed the flow of your typical work kind of work and TV life? Did your schedule shifted any? Yes. So I currently live in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Um, except where Rutgers is. Uh, but I've been quarantining in Rochester, New York with my mother and my sister. So I've been out of my element as far as um, work study life goes for three months, I think, I've been here. Um, so that means I don't have my own television. I don't have any office space. So I found myself very um, discombobulated because I'm very routine oriented and also just very, um, I don't want to call myself lazy, but I was procrastinating a lot. It took me a very long time to get assignments out this semester. Um, And so TV has now become a distraction from what's going on in the world. Like anything as um, out of this world as possible, I want to watch because it's make-believe. Um, I can't watch like any documentaries, really, um, even though there's some good ones that have come out. Um, but like TV now serves like as a distraction. I, I can see that. I mean, not just with COVID and sheltering in place, but certainly um, with the continued work of Black Lives Matter. Yes. I think a documentary, I'm, I'm having the same problem with documentaries. They just are not going to work for me. Yeah. Um, well, and they, sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, I was going to say, um, right before, I want to say the George Floyd murder 
um, I was watching and I finished watching the Atlanta documentary on HBO. Oh, the the children. Mm-hmm. Yes. Marie Hobson produced it and Terry Jones wrote um, Leaving Atlanta, the book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The child murders, Atlanta child murders for our, our, our listeners. Right. Um, and that last episode, I was just kind of really angry. And then all of this stuff happened. And so I've kind of shut off like the documentary side of my brain, which is hard because I feel like since I was a child, that's all I wanted to watch. Um, but it's definitely not conducive to like escapism, which fantasy television is. So that's what I'm on right now. Okay, so it sounds like your your TV viewing, the schedule has been disrupted by having to share a TV, but it has taken on new significance because you're choosing programs that really allow you this moment of escape. Yes. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say, especially since I get my news. I'm constantly on social media trying to figure out what's happening. So, um, you know, it's a balance between that and then also, you know, getting away from that by entering you know, whatever world is shown on the television. Yeah. It often like feels like it, it's so big, like going through social media for your news, like everything just seems like so specific while you're taking it in, but then at the same time, like insurmountable and just like overbearing and like, it can be a lot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very overwhelming. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. How did you get into reality TV, The Real Housewives, and Bravo shows? Um, so I grew up watching soap operas with my mother and my grandmother, and I think that reality shows nowadays are soap operas. I think you know they've taken the place of soap operas like quite literally with the canceling of like lots of these shows that have been on for like over thirty years, but also in terms of like. Um, the construct constructive storylines and the melodrama. I feel you know there's a connection between reality television and soap operas, and so I feel like my brain was kind of uh, groomed for reality television. But I think I started with um, the Real World when I was a kid. Uh, I remember watching the Real World a lot, and then when I was a teenager, there was Laguna Beach on MTV, and um, there was. Uh, BET had like a counter to that, which was called Baldwin Hills. Yes, they did. They did. Yeah. Um, and I really enjoyed that. Um, and then what it kind was, of um, what was Baldwin Hills like? I hadn't heard of that. It was uh, Baldwin Hills. I guess was like a part of some part in California. Is it? Oh, because you're you're not from California. Baldwin Hills is right adjacent to the Crenshaw District. It, it, okay. It, it's oh, okay. literally the hills. And for our listeners, uh. Tanisha Ford spoke about this in our very first interview with her um, in that it was kind of an upper middle class neighborhood. So in the Baldwin Hills show, um, you see kids that are both from the hills, the top of the hills, and people that are more closer down to like, you know, um, I don't know what the neighborhood is below it. I'm, I'm blanking. But Baldwin Hills is an upwardly mobile community right off of Crenshaw in, in, in Los Angeles. So there you go. I set it up for you. Take it away, Gwendolyn. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I watched that for a couple of years until um, that went off the air. Um, And Bravo, actually, I remember watching Being Bobby Brown when that came out. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> we were at BravoCon, and you would be amazed how many producers used that as some of their segue into reality TV. Mm-hmm. So yeah. for producers and ourselves, that was a segue for a lot of people. Yeah, and also I think it was like a breakthrough for Bravo because that was some of their first like programming. And I think they also had a show about like wealthy teens in New York. I can't uh, think of the name right now, but those were kind of the first Bravo shows that I watched. And so when the OC came on, I remember, um, I guess like the Real Housewives of Orange County was supposed to be like a reality version of Desperate Housewives. Because if you remember that first season, um, there's Joe and Slade who were mm-hmm. engaged when she was like younger. And then that cast member, Gina. Keo, yeah. Keo. Yeah, I think her son, uh, who's name? Shane. They were trying to play like this kind of flirtation between Shane and Joe, you know, older woman, younger kid. And it was supposed to mirror like this desperate housewife storyline. Um, so that kept me interested for a couple of years. But by the time like I want to say Atlanta came out and uh, New Jersey came out, I was kind of over the OC housewives. And now I'm just, um, I would say I like Beverly Hills. Uh, New York when Bethany's on it, New Jersey and Potomac. And I really miss Housewives of Miami and uh, D.C. I thought they were great. Mm-hmm. You are our second guest that said D.C. I think only you and I feel <laughs> that they should bring D.C. back. They dev- And they showed a marathon not that long ago. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is great. But I think it was like too many like national security issues going on. And they had <laughs> like when they bust into the White House, for example. Yes. Yes, and then that woman, um, she, uh, her husband reported her as kidnapped when she had actually like ran away to be with some other man, and so like oh. something happened with the production. Yeah, it was very strange. They but, had like oh. the wrong kind of baggage for the that show. <laughs> right. Like they needed right. her to be like messy, they... but not that right. messy. <laughs> right, and when you watch it, when you wa- if you watch the marathon alongside other shows, their messy was except for the example you just showed, you just gave us, their, me- their messy was a more like highbrow kind of messy. Like I don't think the average viewer could kind of get into what some of their issues were. Right. Where it's it. very easy for us to get into the, the raunchiness of flipping a table over on someone. <laughs> I just feel like the DC drama was, I mean, they're crashing a White House party versus crashing a baby party. I mean, there's, there's a difference. Yeah, they testify before Congress. Like, <laughs> so I love this connection you're making about um, soap operas to the housewives, mm-hmm. especially if you think about the way that's in which so many Beverly Hills housewives are also soap opera stars. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's like kind of concentric circles yeah. here. So you live in the general area where Ranj is filmed, how representative or not is the franchise of the community in your county? Wait, did you call it Ranj? Oh yeah, sorry. I, I say Ranj for short. <laughs> we have an internal we have an internal conversation. I had to use Ranj too. Oh, I really like that. Because <laughs> everyone said Roni and Roa and like right, right, Ron- right. Ronj also has the good, like a nice syllabic sound for like <laughs> Real Housewives in New Jersey. I think Ronj. Well, there's also something yeah. about like the way that Ronj like 
it's like felt in your body when you say it. That's yeah. a little, it's like a little deeper where I almost feel like this is like, you know, where Teresa flips tables from. Right. Like, like <laughs> this try, mythical place called Ron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if you like try, Gwendolyn, try saying Ron for a second and feel like where, like it's, it's kind of like low when you say it. Ron. Right? Yeah, I, I do mean it sounds like a entity. Yeah, versus like Roni, which is like a little higher, right? And so like, I don't know, there's like, there's like something about like the way that Ron sits in the voice box where you're like, yeah, those ladies get into it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, and also I think it sets it apart from the other franchises um, since like Ron is so different from the other ones. <laughs> you know, like it's, just it's the whole state it's red housewives of new jersey it's not like right you know roni nyc beverly hills is beverly hills like new jersey is all of new jersey well and the interesting (laughs) thing yeah (laughs) not only is it all of new jersey right but it's all of new jersey while it's really tracking a single family's dynamic and how other people relate to this one particular family but i've been thinking about it a lot with um you know covid19 news and how many whole families were taken down in New Jersey, right? Like yes, and all even, of a sudden um, 19 people from one family have all, you know, gotten sick and gone to ICU, right? Because of the way that the the families are constantly together and meeting or, you know, that really close intimacy and messiness that we see with, you know, the Gorgas and the Judices. Right. And also um, New Jersey is, one of the most densely populated, if not the most densely populated state in the country. And so we're just all on top of each other. Um, And when you look at the numbers for COVID-19, Bergen County, where um, I'm from, where I grew up, but also where Caroline lives, uh, where Dina and Jacqueline also used to live. I think they moved out. Um, The numbers for Bergen County were the highest in the state. Um, So I think that's really an interesting correlation that like family dynamics are, yeah. are, are adding to the exacerbation of the pandemic. Right. Yeah. Like stay at home. You don't have to have Sunday dinner. This week, <laughs> <you know? laughs> um, so oh, but there was a, I mean, I can, I, sorry, I just think of that and I can already imagine, I mean, uh, no, no, rest in peace. But, you know, before that, uh, could you imagine the the intense dynamic that would have sparked again between the Gorgas and the Jude- and the Judices if, you know, Melissa and Joey were like, yeah, no, we're not coming for Sunday dinner with, with you and no, no. You know what I mean? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And also, I thought of um, their father when COVID hit, because I think in the last season, he was hospitalized for pneumonia. Um, and then to find out that he passed like during this, I was like, oh wow, that's really bad. Or kind of like right at, um, like, kind of like right at the beginning of it, I think. Right, right. Can you elaborate on the issue of segregation in the suburbs of Bergen County that Ron silences and obscures from viewers? Sure. So, um, Bergen County is northern New Jersey. It's very close to New York City. There's a large population of people who day in and day out uh, travel to New York City to work. I was one of those people before grad school. Um, And 
Bergen County is also, so the Bergen County you see on, um, I don't think the housewives now, well, except for Margaret, she was in Englewood, New Jersey, which is in Bergen County, but the rest of the housewives live in different counties. But the first two, three seasons, you had Caroline, Dina, and Jacqueline. They all lived in this town called Franklin Lake, New Jersey, which is a very affluent neighborhood um, in Bergen County, but it's been kept away from Black people, or Black people, African Americans have not been allowed to enter Franklin Lake. Um, in Bergen County, 70% of the African-American population is in three cities, uh, Hackensack, Teaneck, and Englewood. And that's not an accident. You know, uh, those three cities are also 15, 20 minutes away from George, from the George Washington Bridge, going into Manhattan. And when you look at the migration patterns, for example, in Teaneck, New Jersey, where I grew up, um, there was a large influx of African-Americans moving from like 1949 into the 70s from New York City into these three areas. And it's like, as soon as you go out of these areas, there's no more Black communities, no more Black churches, Black businesses. Um, and so that's the Real Housewives of New Jersey that you see for the most part. Um, and I think, you know, we're also aware of what type of narrative these shows are giving to us. So, you know, Real House of Real Housewives of Atlanta, for example, kind of takes like this Atlanta is Wakanda like approach. You know, it's a mecca for black people, for black culture, black music, black hair, all of these things. But then you know there's obviously an underbelly. They don't talk about the poverty. And I feel like Real Housewives of New Jersey or Ron does something similar. And I was okay with the narrative until I realized that Margaret lived in Englewood, um, which I lived in for a couple of years, and until I saw Dolores in a part of Englewood that I recognized, and she shows up at a women's shelter, um, and it's all these Black women there, and that's the first time you've seen, like, Black women on this show. Um, so that was my issue with it. Uh, <laughs> Could you give us a little bit more of maybe this um, his, uh, history or um, discussion of the dynamic uh, between Inglewood versus Bergen County? Sure. So um, Inglewood, Teaneck and Hackensack, like I said, they have the bulk of the African-American population in Bergen County. Um, Margaret Joseph lives in a part of Inglewood I've never been to. I don't even think I've driven through that part. Um, the street that Dolores was driving down is known as the Az, and it's the main street in Inglewood. There's lots of businesses, um, but it's a segregated street. So on one side, going up the hill, um, as they call it, there's, you know, Starbucks. There's all these different types of restaurants, um, Sort of like different ethnicities, like Indian restaurants, Turkish, different fusions restaurants. There's like a Ben and Jerry's. Uh, there's, you know, different businesses like European Wax Center. But when you go on the other side of the hill, that's where the fast food restaurants are. That's where all the nail shops are. That's where the bodegas are. Um, and from what I've learned in my research, the people at the bottom of the hill, which historically had been African-Americans, used to work for the white people at the top of the hill. 
So, you know, the fact that we never really see that part of Inglewood when we see Margaret Joseph, I don't know, just kind of stood out to me. Um, and it bothered me. I guess it would also bother me if I was from Atlanta and saw like this one vision of it on the screen, but I'm not from there. I'm from New Jersey. And I'm just like, what are they trying to tell us um, by focusing only on these specific parts of this city? And Englewood has a history of um, activism, you know, during this 1960s, there were marches to desegregate the schools. Englewood had a welfare rights organization. Um, so the African-American population has history there. And I think that they could have, and they still can weave in some of that history without just, you know, Dolores doing a, a fundraiser for black women at a shelter. So I guess, you know, I, I guess I would just, and Casey had already asked this about it being representative or not representative of, of your particular county. Let me expand out and just ask a little bit more broadly. Is it representative of, of, of New Jersey? Because like the Beverly Hills Housewife, I watch it and I say, oh, some of that is accurate. I watch Orange County and the plastic surgery and I say, oh, that is accurate. So I'm wondering, because we've already talked about it being about Jersey as a whole, do you see it as being accurate or do you just see it, again, as kind of, well, I guess you've answered this, as one family's narrative? I think it's representative of one family, but also representative of this Italian immigrant story. Um, I think, well, in the last couple of seasons, they've added other um ethnicities you know jennifer is turkish um but i think for the most part these first like maybe like the first five years it was just very like a a very italian immigrant story second or third generation um immigrants who came here they built the brownstone in patterson you know caroline manzo's husband owns and operates that um and I also think Ranj is supposed to be or was supposed to be a counterpart to the Jersey Shore. So like uh, an, right. adult, an adult version of the Jersey Shore, but like, you know, they're grown up, they have children, they have businesses and there's drama because they're related. Um, so I think well, I would. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. Finish. Finish. Sorry. Uh, no, it's OK. I lost my train of thought. It's OK. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I, that's when I get excited. I, you know, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't mastered that pause yet. So I could totally see it being a counter to Jersey Shore, but I would invoke Dr. Phil on this and say, so how is that working for you? Is it a counter to Jersey Shore? Let's really think about it. There's I mean, drinking, there's excess. I mean, granted, there's not, I was going to say there's no gin can and what is it? Gym, can, and laundry. laundry. So there's probably no laundry, but there's certainly gym and canning going on. Yeah, that was just my um, tongue-in-cheek question. I mean, I think <laughs> I think it is an adult version of Jersey Shore. I I think it's the fact that Jersey Shore shows <laughs> this part of New Jersey where I'm trying to think if I've been to the shore. I've been a couple times. I was very uncomfortable when I went there um, as a black person. Um, 
like some issues with police officers, stuff like that. It is like a party town for white kids, I want to say. Um, and I think because MTV chose to focus on Italian Americans and where they go during the summer, I feel like in a lot of ways, Real Housewives of New Jersey is Italian Americans and what they're doing for the summer hits uh, when they're actually grown up. And there's a lot of the same stuff going on. I think. Um, Oh my goodness, I'm going back to like the first or second season where Teresa's obsessed with um, getting boogies and I think Joe <laughs> paid for some um, or like there's some episodes at a spa, um, the gossiping with um, Danielle Staub, Staub and that book where she, you know, the prostitution horror book, that whole thing can kind of be mirrored in the Jersey Shore storyline where there was like a letter written by I think Snooky and J Wow and it Yeah Ronnie was mm-hmm. cheating on Sammy like it was kind of the yes. same stuff going on. Like there's lots of similarities, including the fact that they erased black people from it. Like they're not a part of it at all. Completely erased black people. Yeah. The other thing um that I think is important is that most of the people in Jersey Shore I think were originally from Staten Island. Um right. I think Sam you are right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That that was just my point. Yeah, the Jersey like, Shore was their vacation. There was it was their vacation away from the city. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So really, it was like summer house before summer house. I'm gonna agree with you on yeah. that. Summer house <laughs> is the newest show on Bravo where they all live together for the oh, summer. Yes, 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 yes. I've seen this a couple of times. I couldn't get into it. Yeah. <laughs> It took a while yeah, to Matt- get into Summer House, but like this, by the time this newest season came out, I was like, "Oh, this is like the perfect messiness that we need that we <laughs> that we've been missing in some of our other franchises, particularly from um, Vanderpump Rules." Yeah, Summer okay. House has really picked up the slack. <laughs> oh, but also, I don't know if you guys are watching other non-Bravo shows, but Ninety Day Fiance. Can I just say I've never watched? Oh. Um, and I go ahead and I'm upset. Um, you are not I the first person to say this to us. <laughs> it, it, and it's not, it's not even like an obsession. Like, Oh my God, this is so interesting. It's just like, I can't believe what I'm watching. Um, like this season, there's a woman who met a guy online who was catfishing her. She uh-huh. goes, um, and he's actually like from Delhi, India. Uh-huh. And, um, doesn't it all look like the guy that she was talking to? She's in her 60s and she packed up everything, cashed in her 401k, moved to India to live with him. And then she gets a knock at the door with his father-in-law and his wife. He was married. <laughs> she has to go back and stay with her daughter on her daughter's couch. And she's still in a relationship with him and is still going back to India. And I'm just like, what? You're in your 60s. Like, it doesn't wow. make any sense. Wow. But well, let's talk about, let's talk about since 90 Day Fiance, just a little, we're going to just, you know, segue soon into our very fun historian's hot take, but 90 Day Fiance, we would be remiss if we would, didn't talk about the drama this season with, I think her name was Linda and Soldier Boy. Did you watch this? Linda and Did you watch, watch this, Gwendolyn? Linda and Soldier Boy, the young man from Nigeria? And Linda, the older oh, white woman from someone yes. in the Midwest. Yes, 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 yes. She um, calls him the N-word, right? Is that She, she called him the N-word. The no. The older white woman went to Nigeria, 
Yes. Wow. And it was revealed that they, she had called him the N-word and she went back and forth on social media with people. And she, of course, is not coming back for another season. Yeah. Wow. But there were also other things about their relationship. And I actually have been forbidden to watch 90 Day for Fiance by my partner because um, (laughs) it's an international relationship. And so every time I see something, I'll send it to him. He's like, this is not us. Quit watching this. (laughs) (laughs) So I've been forbidden from watching it. But you've also but known your fiance for like ever. You've known him for so long. Let let the visa, let the U.S. Embassy show that we've also known each other for ten years. Right. It hasn't been ninety days. Right? Yeah, they had lots of issues. She was very um, domineering, also. Yeah, it was it was it was she, she was very American to watch in that moment. Yeah. So it sounds like she was just a Karen in that you know, from from the synopsis. I will neither confirm nor deny. I just know she used the N word. <laughs> well, now, since Percy, we, what do we have next? Well, <laughs> since we're already kind of there, the game I planned for it's today. kind of already in the hot take. I know. I decided I wanted to play what I like to call historian's hot take. Um, and I envision this as like our version of People's Couch or Fashion Police, you know, that general yeah. panel show that just gives the off-the-cuff, free-flowing uh, opinion critique. So I have yeah. I have come up with uh, a couple of broad um, conversation points for our Banco Party game break. And, you know, you, again, there might be some baby noises in the background because uh, as, as good uh, Bravo-loving historians, this kid has some Bravo opinions and they, they can't even speak yet. So. <laughs> so our first point for historians' hot take, and you guys do not have to agree, um, how do you feel about the failure of Bravo to bring back Texicanas and Mexican dynasties for a new season. And what do you want to see with family karma if that gets brought back? Okay, I go first. Yeah, go for it. You're the guest, by all means. I didn't watch the, what is it called, Texicana? Mm-hmm. Or, um, was, was that the one that was set in Mexico, though? Because there was one in Mexico, right? So Mexican Dynasties was the one in Mexico. Um, and it was okay. just a couple families, but they were, you know, big, 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 important, you know, very wealthy, well-known families in Mexico City. And then Texicana's was about uh, women living on the U.S.-Mexico border. They all lived on the U.S. side, though. But we're okay. frequently going back and forth throughout their lifetime and still going back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it was... Uh, they were And they were on at the same time last year. It was really interesting. Yeah, I think... Um disregarding like the business of reality programming as far as like, you know, I don't know what the numbers were and maybe nobody was watching it. Um, but I think they should try again, maybe not with those shows, but how about like a real wife, a real housewives franchise in Mexico? Um, I think that would be more interesting and it's a formula that they're very good at. Um, I'd be interested in seeing that family karma I found a little bit boring, but I also, 
think, again, Bravo can try a Real Housewives version, and I actually think they should go to India and do the Real Housewives of Mumbai. Um, I have some friends. That's a great idea. That's a great idea. Bravo, are you listening? This is Gwendolyn Fowler. Bravo development team. Bravo development team. Someone for you. I want my check though. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, I think it would just be really interesting. Like Mumbai has uh, all the Bollywood actors in it and their wives. Um, so I just think it would be very interesting. They all kind of know one another. And yeah, I think that would be a way they could go down. And, and like I said, like the Real Housewives formula, like Bravo has perfected it at this point. And I think that's their stronghold. So maybe doing it that way, they can actually usher in more diversity. Jessica, you're up next for your your hot take on on this point. Now, the problem is I really couldn't get into either one of them, but I I think probably they realized, Bravo realized that they weren't equipped enough to deal with issues that dealt with U.S. immigration in a real tangible way. And so having these um, both shows that go back and forth across the border or back and across, back and forth across the imaginary wall, I feel like it was one of viewers' situation uh, that they didn't have enough strong enough ratings. And two, I, I don't know if Bravo knew how to develop it. You know, because um, Bravo picks and chooses. Yes, Andy, I'm talking to you. Bravo picks and chooses when they want to be involved in controversial matters. So I just feel like maybe it wasn't the right formula. Um, and then we bring, we bring family karma back. I've had problems with family karma from the beginning. And so at the, at the risk of putting all my friends, um, you know, um, from India or Southeast Asia on the spot, I've said, can you please watch the show? And they don't want to deal with it. So I haven't gotten an insider look. And what I basically think about all Bravo show is there's a formula that they follow. And in, in the case of, uh, Texacanas and Mexican dynasty, it didn't necessarily gel. And in family karma, to me, sometimes it feels a little too manufactured. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to give family karma a chance, a, cho- uh, a, a, a try. So, you know, there's probably bigger political issues that I'm missing out on. You know, it's summertime. I just turned grades in, so maybe I'm not thinking uh, the way I need to about critical race pedagogy, but I'm not surprised that the first two didn't come back. I might be uncomfortable that the second one came back. Okay. Um, I really liked uh, Texacanas because of the way that they, like, connected geographies across... um, uh, El Paso and, and San Antonio and then like down into Juarez. I thought that that was really fascinating how they were constructing families um, and wish that that show in particular would come back. Uh, Mexican dynasties seemed a little too, I know we're talking about Bravo here, but like it seemed a little too contrived for me. Um, and like a little too performative. Like everything was about, performance as both like like in their particular um issues that they would have with each other on the show but then like they're also aspiring actors and actresses and stuff um 
and and one or two of them actually might have been a soap opera actor i think um but yeah i i concur like i would definitely like to see some form of that return but probably in a different um shape similarly with uh family karma i sort of found like them as characters uncompelling but i think that i think that that housewives of mumbai idea is fantastic i think that's excellent now that's something we could watch right i feel i'm not necessarily interested in a family in miami but mumbai Uh well i feel like they could have almost done a new housewives of miami just just with the moms and the aunties right like i felt like that was where that was where the drama was not necessarily with the younger people in those relationships yeah, I mean, let's face it, the older people in any family, it, it's really more, they're really more interesting than the young people, but the young people bring in, in you know, the camera, the young people are pretty for the camera, but I agree with you, Casey, the, the women, the women in the family, the older women, that, that was the storyline. Mm-hmm. Okay, Casey, what's next? What's next? Okay, if you were to take... Rowell Roney and Beverly Hills, which Housewives franchise is currently the hottest? Mm. It's currently the what? I missed the last part. Currently the hottest. Like, which one is the most entertaining uh, consistently? Like, what are you going to turn, what are you going to tune into and feel like you can't miss? Definitely Beverly Hills. Um... And that's because they beat Roni in bringing a black cast member on. Um, and also because Roni, I mean, Bethany's not on there. And I really love Bethany. Um, and I miss her. Um, but I would definitely say uh, Beverly Hills. Beverly Hills still has Erica Jane. And now they have um, Garcelle Uve. I think how you say her last name. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm actually really interested in you know, they're on hiatus now, but when they come back, I want to see more of Erica Jane and Garcelle as like these older women and, you know, with children, with grown children. And I really like their chemistry when they like went to lunch that day. So I'm going with Beverly Hills for sure. Jessica, okay, well, Jessica, do you want to go next? I will go. Um, now, as much as, you know, well, first of all, Roni is getting old. There's only so many times that we can look at Sonia and whoever in a pool with their with their breasts and bottoms pixelated out. There's only so many times that Sonia can yell, I don't wax my pussy and it's gonna be shocking. You know, so there's <laughs> these shocking moments in Roni, but I, I have to agree that if I was looking for the drama and what was gonna be great, it would be Beverly Hills because Garcelle is the person that they needed. Mm-hmm. Here we have um, not just a black woman, but a Haitian woman. So that, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for some of the kind of cultural flair that she could bring to this very static um, cast. I think that whatever's going to happen between her and Kyle are going to be epic. Mm-hmm. It's going to be epic. Um, here Kyle is the child actress and kind of the, the big dog of the of the set now that she's ousted Vanderpump mm-hmm. and Garcelle's like mm, we're gonna have a problem so I think Garcelle is the storm that Kyle couldn't count on and I can't wait for it 
Um, and she, she doesn't back down. She, Garcelle does not back down. So I am, I am all on board uh, Beverly Hills for this one. I also like Erica Jane. I'm interested in seeing what happens with the storyline with Denise Richards and Brandy Glanville. So we're not supposed to know about, but it's all over the tabloids. So I think Beverly Hills gives us much more viewing pleasure right now. I agree. That concludes my TED talk. That concludes my TED talk. <laughs> Go ahead, Max. Yeah, no, I agree. I find it fascinating that like how these franchises have have flipped in many ways in terms of their popularity. Because I remember during like Puppygate, no one wanted anything to do with Beverly Hills, and at the same time, Roni was the best show on the network. Um, I think a large part of that is because of Bethany. Cause as we're seeing now, it, they all kind of seem like it's just sort of aimless fighting that's happening. Like, I'm not exactly sure where any of this is going. It's like they need an anchor, somebody who has a strong enough personality to tether some of that craziness in to make it uh, have a direction so that it's not just like a free ricochet. Yeah. yeah, and also I think, um, you know, Bethany being there, was it last season where she had helped, or we found out she helped Luann get out of some type of legal situation where she could have, like, she violated her parole, I think she was drunk somewhere or something, and, like, Bethany was the only one, like, calling her out all season about her drinking and, like, you have to do this and all this stuff, and, like, I missed that about her. Um, and, and also bailing Luann out. I think she fronted her like $6 million. Her and her... Um, allegedly. Allegedly. This is all allegedly. But I what? think she fronted... I didn't know it was that much. Yeah, what? I felt like they said that on the show. And we'll probably get emails now that was like, it wasn't $6 million, It was four point two five or something. But like, yeah, it was an insane amount of money that, that Bethany and Dennis... Uh, right? I Dennis? think Dennis, yeah. What's his name? Oh, yeah. yeah. That, like, fronted for her because she had so many legal bills. She was homeless, I think, at one point. Allegedly, this is all alleged. (laughs) Yeah. But, like, you know, I think Bethany was that kind of um, tether for all of the women on the show more broadly. And I think that you see, without her there, that it's chaotic, it's messy, but not in a way that, I am making any sense of it just seems um like the ridiculous factor like it's like I can't pay attention for the length of whatever random explosion is happening mm-hmm. that being said though like the stuff that's happening now in Beverly Hills I think is fantastic and I think it's like about time somebody like Garcelle comes in and puts Kyle like somewhere else other than at the top that moment where denise richards was like i am denise richards i was like okay pardon me while i have a moment to like make all of my goosebumps now come down queen moment (laughs) yeah i think kyle's whole shtick is kind of uh boring at this point you know she says a lot of things and when she's confronted she starts crying and i don't know Kind of over. I was really upset at what she said to um, Erica Jane about her not having good friends. Um, and I was just like, whoa, like Kyle's getting below the belt, which she accuses people of doing a yeah. lot. Can we, talk, can we talk about that for a minute, Casey, yeah. as, our, as, our, our, as our leader of ceremony? Sure. Can we talk about Kyle's behavior or do you want to put that somewhere else in, 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 in the 
No, I mean, we can, I mean, this today. is this is our historian hot take, and if hot take includes uh, saying some stuff about Kyle to contextualize why Beverly Hills is the most exciting right now, then I think that's fair game. So I felt like Gwendolyn was poised to say something about sh- shady about Kyle. So I don't <laughs> want to take that moment away from you if you were, because we're all here for it. <laughs> were you about to say something? No, I think I was done. Maybe it'll come Matt, back. do you have something you want to say about Kyle? Um, I mean, I've been waiting for this for what season are we on now? 10, 12. I've been waiting for this for since the beginning, the, the beginning of the show. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm here for it. And, I, you know, when we were when Jessica and I were at BravoCon, um, Kyle was definitely the least accessible of all the housewives and skirted contractual obligations uh, to like meet and greet fans. Cause she just didn't want to like deal with fans taking photos and stuff. So she would just leave. So like, I don't know. I feel like the mask is falling away of like uh-huh. what Kyle has projected versus uh, what many of us have seen. <laughs> I just, I just really need the takedown of Dorit. Like I've learned to like just deal with Kyle, but like for me that now like Garcelle and Dorit are doing the zoom watching of old seasons. I'm like, they couldn't find anybody else, but Dorit, like I don't care. Like Dorit is who I would love to see gone. She drives me nuts. Like did we all just gloss over the fact that she was abusive to a dog or that her and PK were completely horrible to Erica with Pantygate. Like I don't forget these things and I just, it's hard for me to know that it's Dorit that they're casting to do these watchbacks. That's all true. I don't like, go ahead. Sorry. Now I'm just going to say like, what is it about? Like, I feel like this is with all the franchises is like, uh, one season, a cast member will, you know, exhibit really poor, disgusting behavior and then they hash it out at the reunion. And then the next time they're filming together, you're supposed to forget like what was done, what was said. Um, this goes back to um, an early interview we did with Bravo Demic Don Durante from University of Illinois Press because she dubbed this phenomenon the, I think it was the ecology of the apology or the apology economy. Yeah. The apology economy, right? Where like you could be as horrendous as humanly possible, but if your apology is performative enough, right? Like people forget and, you know, the cast forgets, right? Because like the performance of the apology was enough. Right. I will say, okay, so um, controversial take about Dorit. Dorit is terrible. I'm going to preface this that. By saying, like, what she did with Lucy Lucy Apple Juicy should never be forgotten. Um, that being said, though, I am really curious where where this Buca de Beppo plot goes. I, 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 you know, by the time this episode comes out, we'll probably know. But I want to know, like, I, I want to go with her and PK on their Buca de Beppo journey. <laughs> As she designs the room in Buca de Beppo, um, the parties that they're going to have throughout the season, I, I'm really here for it. The way that they like position themselves um, against Lisa Vanderpump and her restaurants as if like owning 
a franchise chain like Buca de Beppo is the same. I mean, as the like, food at Buca de Beppo might be better than Sir Tom Tom. It Pum. definitely is. It definitely is. I'm not disagreeing <laughs> with that. <laughs> but I can also, and I, I have not had the food at uh, Vanderpump's restaurants, but I have had Buca de Beppo once. And in my mind, I just think you have Pump and Sir, and you have all this, you know, Villa Blanca, all this fabulousness, and then you have Buco de Beppo. And I hear Dwight from um, from Housewives of Atlanta back in the day when Phaedra had a baby shower. And I just hear in my mind, Trey, Trey, D-Classe. <laughs> That's what I hear. That's what I hear. It's like you're trying to fight and you don't have the same arsenal. That's what I love about it. That's what I love about it, though. And, and actually, Google de Beppo is, you know, it's a national-wide franchise, so it's not hurting at all. No, they're not hurting, but this is, like, the equivalent. This is, I think, like, Buco de Beppo on the, like, Italian chain restaurant scale is, like, slightly higher than Olive Garden. But they're comparable. But they're comparable. So, to me, it's as if PK and Dorit were like, we're going to open an Olive Garden in Encino. The difference is it's, like, kitschy. It's, like, even kitschier Italian. Yeah. It's it's what Ronge projects into a restaurant. Yes. Yeah. Like, it is true. Like, right, if you go back to the early seasons of Ronge and there's that Christmas Eve episode and Caroline Manzo looks like she's feeding an Italian feast to, like, a hundred of her relatives, right, with those long tables and she doesn't even get out of her sweats to pass the lasagna. <laughs> oh, I remember this. I remember this. Yeah. <laughs> So the last um, historian hot take for our Banco Party Game break today. We have not yet had a Shaws of Sunset reunion for this latest season. It's supposedly coming oh. in works. But with this Reza MJ feud divide, where do you stand? Will the reunion have any chance of changing your mind? Um, I stopped watching Shaws of Sunset. I didn't watch this past season. I think I'm just kind of over it. Um, you know what? There's something to be but, said about that. This last season, I was just like, I don't even know why we filmed this. Yeah, like, it's, I don't know. It's just like, how many more cycles can you go through of this with it escalating each time? Like, I remember the first time MJ and Reza started beefing. And at the reunion, it, it was when they introduced um, Lily Galici, mm-hmm. who was on one season. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Reza all of a sudden was best friends with her and kicked MJ to the curb. And then at the reunion, he just, like, let all of MJ's business out. She tried to rob a bank. She almost went to jail. Like, all of this stuff. He's telling her real age. And then, like, Lily wasn't there anymore. And they're best friends again. And then, so, like, I don't know. I just kind of got tired of it. And I just feel like the drama on Shaz of Sunset is too much for that age group. Like, I <laughs> yes, like it's where it's where Jax needs you know? to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say, listen, guys. You know, there's an anchor to every series, and Reza and Mercedes are basically the anchor to this series. Yeah. But I could increasingly do without Reza. I think Reza more so than anyone has revealed himself to be a horrible friend and a horrible person. And, you know, I mean, I don't think it's right that Tommy went and vandalized Reza's house, but 
did anyone really listen to what Reza said to Mercedes? Did anyone really listen? I find Reza to be a very abusive, narcissistic, spoiled person yeah. with no self-reflection. But he's the anchor to the show. So at the same time I say get rid of him, would the show, what would the show be without Reza? I don't know. I mean, they had... Would you bring back Asa? What would you do? They had... I liked Asa. They had one of R. Kelly's exes on this last season. And like, that yeah, went I couldn't nowhere. Get with it. You know, it was I like, oh yeah, I she's, she's I didn't cast. like it. It was really weird. You didn't like it? Go. She was, she was deliberately cast. And she told the lines that he was innocent. And so, you know, come on now. Yeah. We all know that he's not innocent. We also all know, allegedly. Allegedly. We also know that, you know, she's acting like she hadn't heard some of these rumors. Like she's the new wave of, you know, undergrad students who are hearing about R. Kelly for the first time. Right. <laughs> My yeah. first teaching job was years ago when I taught at the University of Illinois. And I had undergrads who went to school and would tell me that in high school and junior high, R. Kelly was sitting outside their high school Ugh. and junior high waiting for girls. I heard the same thing that he used to take girls to McDonald's like during their lunch break. Whoa. Mm-hmm. He would yeah. just sit there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so you can't plead ignorant, plead ignorant that you didn't know about R. Kelly. Come on now. Even his wife has, you know, come out and said, yeah, this is what he did. So I feel like if that storyline would have been really authentic, and or would have done something with the R. Kelly information, either be disgusted or what have you. I think it could have been more compelling. But just having her there to have her there, eh. It was like they had her there so they could have two parties at her pool. But, like, it was so random that I would forget that she was a cast member. Right. There was no reason to have her on the show. And especially don't come on the show if you're not going to talk about your drama. Yeah. I mean. Everyone knows that. Exactly. Um, I think that's been like that has been the big issue with in many ways, all of these franchises that everybody, all the cast members have really become too conscious of what their edit is going to look like. Um, right. What their edit and their, and then subsequently their brand. Yeah. So there might need to be like the productive thing to come out of this game should be like, a moratorium on Bravo cast members. Like after six years, you're done and we retire you. We institute term limits. Yeah. Ooh, like Menudo. Remember the music group Menudo? When yeah. Age, you had to retire. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Cause like all these shows, like it's difficult to have to watch, you know, you're talking about like the fight between Reza and MJ um, unfolding on the show, like really early on when Lily was on, but like, it sounds like the same stuff we're listening to now. And like the stuff with like Mike Shahood um, not being able to settle down, but like wanting to settle down. Like we've been there. We've done that. Like bring in someone new. I don't necessarily want to have an age limit on it. Cause like I'd no. be the first in line to watch a whole new housewives of the retirement home starring Ramona Singer. But, um, can you imagine? <laughs> but like, I do think an idea of term limits, like, okay, you have three years, you have four years to just keep the cast fresh and to keep the relationships on their toes, right? Like if you're constantly kind of graduating people out, like terming them out, then um, those relationships and the drama, I think, would continue to be um, 
more real and less micromanaged. For yeah, sure. I think that would apply to um, Housewives of Atlanta also because I'm tired of Nene Leaks at this point. Um, yep. I'm also tired of Kenya and their drama that tired of them both ever, ever end because they just don't like each other, but they have to work together, you know? Um, yeah, I think definitely, well, I don't even know if Nene's coming back this season, but uh, they fired Eva. So, I heard yeah. that the that they did not fire Eva, that Eva actually quit. And I feel like, so this is like the debate going on in the blogs is whether or not Eva was fired. Because I think Nini wants to say they fired Eva to keep her. Um, cause, but the way that I've been reading um, releases from Eva is that um, she, she tendered her own resignation um, to have a career, like a TV career that's better fit for being a mom with young kids. Yeah. Okay. We, we're going to need somebody who just like is willing to be messy and who has not become a caricature of like when they were first introduced to us. I agree. I agree. I think in Eva's case, you know, she's been on dish nation. So now she has kind of the, um, celebrity, celebrity commentator behind her. She's reestablished herself. I think that she is probably looking for bigger and better things. And even if she was kicked off so Nini could be on the show, I mean, how many more seasons is it going to last with Nini on the show? Right. I think Nini has hit the apex of what she can do. And her life, sorry, Max, to cut you off, her going to a life coach and this, this, and that. Nini, you need to go sit down and get it together with all due respect. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I'm tired of Nini. I, I totally yeah, agree. I think, you know, kind of what happened with Vanderpump where like you stick around to watch yourself become the villain and Nini's been the villain for like the past couple of seasons, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm just, I'm over it. You can't, and, and you know, her behavior has not ever changed as far as like, I'm just thinking of how she argues, right? It's that I'm going to yell over you and increase my volume and point in your face until you stop talking. And I'm just like, in how many seasons, like 10, 12 seasons, like you've never like done it differently. I just find it boring at this point, you know? That said, I do think that Portia has some of the most staying power of any housewife in any franchise. The way that she's been able to evolve through the seasons, be the underdog so many times, but like claw her way back and um, transform in real time on the television. I mean, it's... And she even survived the Phaedra drama with Candy, you know? So what we... I think the conclusion that we're coming to then is that there should be term limits, but that there should also be a Porsche exemption to the rule. It's called the Porsche Clause, actually. Yeah, the Porsche Clause, she's able... If, like, you're able to reinvent yourself the way that, like, to the level that Porsche has been able to do on the show multiple times, like... But do you... Sorry, go ahead, Matt. No, no, no. I get too excited. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. I just feel like you can't watch Porsche on Housewives without watching her on Dish Nation. Because I feel like the freedom that she has on Dish Nation has allowed her to evolve and strengthened her confidence. So then it replays, it's replicated on the housewife. I don't know if she'd be able to to um, rebrand herself or kind of change her storyline if she also didn't have Dish Nation because, you know, she's talking to millions of people. 
She's got to be quick-witted. There's just more space for her than versus on the first few seasons of, of Roa where she was Cordell's wife, was she his beard, now she's going to go get married to this guy. I mean, part of the interest in Phaedra is that, you know, we have the hot dog king and you can see what's going on with him in social media. We can see what she's talking about. Even the storyline between her and Eva, that Eva said that she had to come off maternity leave. That storyline was thank you to Dish Nation. So mm-hmm. I, I feel like they need to watch them. I feel like they're in tandem with one another, and which is fine, not in a bad way. I just feel like that uh, she gained a lot of confidence from doing Dish Nation. And so she's, she's speaking up more for herself. And, and her reads, her reads are excellent. What did she say in the reunion? about was it Nini's breasts that were social distancing? Eva. She said <laughs> Yeah, she said Eva's breasts were social distancing. I mean, she's gotten some great reads reads since she started Dish Nation. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Well, this was a very informative historian hot take. I feel like I could see the whiteboards and the pens out and ready. Okay. You mean people plotting no, I mean, like, if this was ESPN, right, for Bravo, I feel like I, I could see all the all the plays drawn out on the whiteboard. This is like John Madden for, for Housewives. Totally. Yeah. I understand. I understand the reference. I think so, too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historians on Housewives. Be sure to catch part two, where we conclude our Bunko Party game break and continue our conversation with Gwendolyn Fowler. As always, you can find us at historiansonhousewives.com, where you can propose your own episode topic, ask us questions, and send us feedback. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at historiansh. And don't forget that you can like and review the podcast on your podcast platform. Thank you, Gwendolyn Fowler. This show was brought to you with the support by Barbara and Mark Spear, Saddleback Community College, Christina Hinkle, Christina Gamberpour, Judd Merlaski, Pete Murray, Yvonne Ballardes, Cody Baker, Molly Callahan, Dr. Joaquin Galarza, Courtney Crow, Lara Loper, and Louis Asio de Dios. And remember, scholars do bravo too. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.